Hey everyone, and thanks for joining us here again at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. I'm Amy Ho, ER doctor and ASAP Now assistant editor, and your host of this podcast. So it is April, and spring is officially here. We've got spring break, warm weather, and with that, more trauma, and our usual seasonal spring illnesses. Am I right? Now, we are back this episode with kind of the usual structure. We have a piece from ASAP Now, the magazine, that is coming to your mailboxes now if it hasn't already hit it. And for this month, what caught my eye was Dr. Lauren Westifer's column on diverticulitis and on not prescribing antibiotics. And the reason this caught my eye is because unlike a lot of our content where we say what to do, in this instance, we're talking about de-escalating care and what not to do. Now, I stole that term de-escalating from Dr. Westifer because as we were chatting, I actually didn't realize this, but she has a specialization in looking at low impact, unnecessary interventions and trying to educate people to roll it back. And we had a great conversation about the feedback loop that ER doctors get, that is the feedback loop where all we hear about is when you did something and the patient back bounced back and came back horribly sick. So we only ever get to hear when we didn't do something right. And in a way that creates this idea of CYA, what we don't hear about is when either patients go home and do perfectly fine with nothing And we also don't hear about patients when they go to their PCP with maybe a, you know, low acuity complication from one of the interventions that we did recommend, but that didn't hit the threshold to bounce back to the ER. So we are hoping that this segment on acute diverticulitis helps fill that gap of how to downscale low yield intervention and looks at some great evidence supporting it. Following that, we have Dr. Alden Landry, who has more titles than I can name, but is notably Assistant Dean and Associate Professor at Beth Israel Deaconess, and has a lot of titles in DEI, which is appropriate because we are chatting that packed topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, spoil alert, we will talk equity versus equality, I think one of the most controversial and important topics when we discuss diversity, and he has got one of the best summaries and explanations of that topic that I've heard here to date. Now, we've got a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. I'm very, very excited to have an old-timer with us from ASAP Now. We have the infamous Dr. Lauren Westifer of Foamcast, also known as a assistant professor of emergency medicine and research fellowship director at UMass Chan Medical School, Bay State. So Lauren, I am super excited to have you join us because you have been a columnist for ASAP Now for a really long time, and we've never had you on. So thanks so much for coming on. I'm happy to be here. Always excited to talk about the literature. Yeah. So I ran across your article in this month's magazine in the April edition on diverticulitis. And I really wanted to talk about this because I feel like a lot of times what we do when we see a patient with abdominal pain, not even diverticulitis, is we just go to scan. And I feel like in diverticulitis, it's like 
scan antibiotics out. Like that's kind of the classic, you know. And what you talked about here was not giving antibiotics, which to me is actually quite quite interesting because it, it opens the question of why are we scanning and some other things like that. So tell us a little bit about what you saw in the literature here. Sure. I think I think I have a similar type of practice pattern or paradigm. I was trained with, you know, scan people and then outpatient management if they're appropriate, if not admit, but definitely antibiotics source control if needed. But what happened was during my residency training about 2015, some guidelines came out from the American Gastrological Association, which said, hey, you can not treat some patients with diverticulitis with the antibiotics. And this was like cutting bleeding edge. And I remember bringing it up to some people and they were like, no, 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 not ready yet. And what has happened is over the past several years, now essentially every professional society that deals with like GIASTA, the colon, all the experts say selective use, not routine use. And obviously that, that means there are caveats, right? That means not diverticulitis doesn't need antibiotics, but many patients with diverticulitis do not need antibiotics. So this is the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons, the World Society of Emergency Surgery, the American College of Physicians, and, and a group that makes recommendations for geriatric patients as well. And so all of these, these guidelines are saying, stop giving them routinely. And so for me, you know, I, I'm maybe not an early adopter, but I uh, really look for when the bulk of evidence really meets that. And when I think that it does, I'm like, okay, now it's time to change practice. And so I think that now we've come to that point where it's time to change practice. And it's actually built on multiple big randomized trial of emergency department patients. And so when I looked through and really dug through that data, I was like, okay, this makes sense. And this is something that we should be doing. Yeah. And what I was so struck by is that exactly what you said, that these are actually emergency medicine patients. It's not like, you know, some casual clinic patient that a GI doctor knows really well, has been following forever. And so to me, this feels like that whole like old school seed counseling, like avoid foods with like seeds, popcorn, et cetera, like that all went off the wayside. But I mean, 2015 is quite a long time away. Like any thoughts on why we really haven't changed our practice pattern? Oh, bless your heart. 2015 in the world of de-implementation of low value care is like a day ago. Um, so you, you think about, about things and uh, for example, CPR, something we do all the time, pulse checks, People still do them all the time, and they they may write it off as, oh, I, I'm really just looking at the rhythm, but they're all still like feeling for pulses, and that's been out of the guidelines for over 20 years, two decades, and this is something that like is like theoretically life or death. And so when it when we talk about changing practice patterns, there's a lot of inertia. We do what we were trained to do. There's a lot of literature on that. It's very hard to change people out of the practice that they were trained in. Um, and then it's even harder if it's de-escalation of something because we have this desire, we always, this bias that more is better, whether it's putting a, a chest tube or pigtail in a spontaneous pneumothorax, the guidelines have said for decades, like you don't need to do that in stable patients with a spontaneous pneumo, or it's di giving di you know all patients with diverticulitis antibiotics. So I think it's just, it's a mental hurdle we all have to get through. So I imagine that the guidelines are all here 
and people are still like, oh, well, that's not my patient population. Oh, well, just in case, like we always have this idea that our patients are different, that our patients are sicker, or, you know, we need to wait for more data when there's a lot of data already out there. So I think that this is really one of those mental hurdles when it talk we talk about, you know, stop doing low value care type things. We just, we, it's really hard for us. <laughs> I know sometimes it feels like we're treating ourselves more than we're treating the patient on this. Like we want to feel like we did something because it makes us feel better about, um, about discharging. And, and, and I'm sure that's a, that's a human thing, not just an ER doctor thing. Well, I think, but there's something unique about emergency physicians and emergency medicine in general. And this, this is a little, you know, maybe off topic, but I think it's important. And I, I should disclaim here that I am a researcher that focuses on de-implementation of low-value care. Um, and, and so when I study this, what happens is we don't get that feedback cycle in emergency medicine. We see the initial thing, we get the diagnosis, we know it, we can treat it, we can like make that diagnosis, and then we never get the follow-up. So whether it is the patient that bleeds out from the anticoagulation for a PE that maybe wasn't there, or maybe it is the days of missed work from gastric upset from the augmentin for diverticulitis that probably would have self-resolved in a you know non-febrile, uncomplicated patient. We don't see that because we don't follow up our patients. The only feedback we get is when a colleague comes in and is like, hey, you remember that patient the other day? Remember? Well, then, you know, and, and like those are the... Yeah, right. Like if we have this response, it's like, oh, no, this is terrible. And so I think that a lot of it in emergency medicine has to do with we don't see the bad stuff that happens from our treatment. We feel good because we get that immediate gratification of, oh, we've got a diagnosis. We know what to do now and shift off that cognitive load. And we don't see the downstream harms. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's it's not that we get no feedback, but it's the we only get the terrible feedback, like the patient bounced back, ended up in the ICU. And so like the patients that go off and go home and have, you know, GI upset or their PCPs upset about something because of their management or like something not severe enough for them to bounce back or they do fine with no intervention at all. Like that sort of feedback we never get. We only get the devastating, you should have, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda sort of uh, feedback on these. Yeah, and it's it's hard too because you gotta you gotta select. The more we find out about essentially every disease process, it's like it's not one thing. It's this spectrum, right? You can have perforated diverticulitis, be septic, need to go emergently to surgery, or you could have acute, uncomplicated right sided diverticulitis or left sided diverticulitis. That's that's gonna be just fine. Um, and so without antibiotics or anything. It's, it's, they're the spectrum of disease process and it takes time and it takes cognitive load to go through and be like, okay, does the patient have these things present or not? And then, okay, like, I mean, I got to get them on board now. I have to anticipate that their primary care doctor may not know about these guidelines or whatever. So I have to preface it for that. And it's more work and there's that hassle bias associated with that. And our projection of what, you know, they're going to see on Google, what their family members are going to say. And also that time crunch, you know, depending on where you practice and what type of group you practice for, maybe you, you're, you know, you're just really metric driven and you don't have really the time to spend on that. So there's a lot of reasons that that may come into play. Yeah. And I think you touched on a couple things here. Like 
in particular, like this is not all diverticulitis. Like obviously if you have like sepsis from this or you're a really high risk patient or you're perforated, like all of these need interventions. Um, and you do a good job in the article going over uh, when is the appropriate patient for not treating with antibiotics. It's basically like uncomplicated, low risk diverticulitis. But but I, I wanted to kind of dive in and get your opinion also on how should this change our practice? Like, obviously, we should not prescribe so many unnecessary low-yield antibiotics. But my next thought is, if we're not really doing anything for it, like, we're just watching it, is there an indication that we keep irradiating all these patients? Like, to me, I'm like, if we're not going to treat it, we're just going to watch it. I already know, like, you don't have severe sepsis based on, like, your vitals and your discussion with us. You look good. You know, I push on your left lower quadrant and it hurts like a little bit. It's probably diverticulitis. It's probably okay to watch and wait. Like, should we all still be scanning these? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, it, I was taught initially that you don't have to scan all diverticulitis. Maybe they have a history of it in the past. Um, you know, there have certainly been instances in which I haven't scanned all comers with diverticulitis. Now, oftentimes I would prescribe them antibiotics because that's what we did then and you know rethinking how I might change that um, you know it's it all depends on that patient's baseline risk their age and I think shared decision making um, comes into it when it comes to the decision to scan because in these trials they did use imaging staging so to to be eligible for acute uncomplicated diverticulitis that uncomplicated diverticulitis isn't how well you are, it is an imaging finding. It's no abscess, no fistula, no perforation. Um, and in and, and one study, they did actually allow a little bit of abscess in there up to five centimeters. Um, but so, so for me to be confident in that and to be like strictly following the criteria, I want to be clear that it required use of that. But I think it brings up a bigger discussion of do we need to scan these patients if we're really sure that's what it is? Obviously, oftentimes there's diagnostic uncertainty um, and, and what we think. There might be other reasons to scan them, but I think it's a great question. Yeah, and I, I think that's really helpful for you to point out that if the research studies are about image diagnose, image stage diverticulitis, then certainly it does make sense to follow that, especially because this is you know, kind of early practice change of not giving antibiotics. Like I, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to deviate too, too far from what the studies and kind of change one thing at a time. Exactly. And I think also because when you look at who got into these studies, sure, it was, you know, those with the imaging findings, so uncomplicated diverticulitis, no abscess, fistula, perforation, and then no sepsis. Like you could maybe have a fever, you could have a little bit of a white count, but you couldn't like have all of those and have meet criteria for sepsis. Um, and, and you, you know, you said sort of you couldn't be that sick, but the comorbidities, they said they weren't like, it wasn't like anyone with diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever, sort of like, you know, the COVID comorbidities is like, if you've been to a doctor, then you're high risk. These are, these are like real, like you don't only have diabetes, but you have organ involvement. You have, you know, nephropathy from your diabetes. You have end-stage renal disease, not just NACKD or whatever. You have decompensated uh, liver disease. So it was, it, they actually allowed people in with a lot of comorbidities, like up to age 80. So it's not just young people. And then they did exclude like immunosuppressed people, but not 
if you just had a little bit of steroids, but you'd be on like long-term chronic steroids or like you couldn't have inflammatory bowel disease because people with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis like maybe have other things going on and are higher risk. But I, I just want to be clear that it's not just you couldn't have any comorbidities. It's just you couldn't be super sick. Yeah. And, and that's actually an incredibly helpful list for you to kind of just rattle through like that um, of what makes you someone that's like higher risk and maybe does need intervention. But on the, on the other side of it, like, um, did any of the studies look at patient population for more just like discharge planning, i.e. like I, like I work in a system where we see a lot of homeless, a lot of uninsured. So a lot of times we are the only, um, healthcare intervention for that patient population. Like, do any of them look at what happens to those patients if they aren't treated with antibiotics? And I, I know you talked about, um, you know, prescribing antibiotics and educating the patient to like wait and see, but at least then they have it. But any thoughts for these special populations? Yeah. I mean, so I always think about like, what if I, if it's a, patient who is undomiciled or has other, you know, maybe doesn't have a primary care doctor sort of safety net, because it's similar to the population I work in where, you know, it's sort of like inner city, a lot of, you know, uh, unhoused individuals. Um, I try to think like, what would antibiotics change? And could they come back to the emergency department? Because for many people, like we are sort of their primary care. Um, and the other thing is I have a, like a, I have a, a Zoom phone number that is a work attached to like, you know, it rings through as like, I'm calling from Bay State Health. Um, but it is, it goes to like an app. And so I like, people can leave a voicemail. And when I want follow-up or like they don't have a primary care doctor, I refer them to like whatever local stuff we have and I give them my card and I say, hey, if you have any questions, if you're having trouble and, and you know, obviously if you're sick, come back to the emergency department. But if you're just wondering like, hey, should I like fill this or not or whatever, give me a call. And like nobody ever calls. Um, and sometimes I call patients and, and follow, but nobody ever calls. So people are like afraid to give out, you know, these like Google phone numbers or Zoom phone numbers, but like very few patients ever actually call back. But that's one thing. And then the other thing is I just tell them to come back, come back in a couple of days if you're not feeling better and we'll see you. And, and they've already accessed it once. So then they know. And then the other is sometimes I do a wait and see script if I'm sort of borderline or the patient is sort of like, eh, well, I don't really know. Um, and they're not super on board with it or have maybe a marginal risk factor. I'm not sure about that's, you know, there are different ways to, to slice and dice it. But I, I don't think giving an antibiotic script is a solution uh, to, you know, to necessarily treat somebody differently if they're undomiciled or have a PCP. I think it's just trying to figure out how can they get a touch point with healthcare in the next week or so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love that number, um, the Zoom number, Google Voice number. Like I've never actually heard of a system doing that, uh, you know, like give a card and say, but again, I, I probably work in not the population that would normally do that, but I love that idea. That's an incredible touch point to follow up. So, so Lauren, I, I wanted to, you know, kind of wrap up with what is your 10 second takeaway on this topic for emergency physicians everywhere? Like if you had like 10 seconds to say, like, do this on your next shift, what would you say? On your next shift, if you have a patient with acute uncomplicated diverticulitis, resist the urge to just say antibiotics and dispo and think about and look up the, the, the sort of eligibility criteria for selective management, because that's what all of the experts in the United States and globally are recommending at this time is selective use, not routine use. So look it up. Don't rely on your memory. Go actually look it up. It's, it's, 
in the article. Um, it's elsewhere. The Dynamo and the Diablo trial are the biggest ones. Look it up um, because a lot of people will fit in to the no need for antibiotics for acute uncomplicated diverticulitis. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us. And like I said, and like she said, check out her article that goes through all of this on the April ASAP now. And we are, again, super, super excited to have you on. Thanks so much, Dr. Westifer. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone at ASAP Now. I am very, very excited to finally be joined here on this episode by Dr. Alden Landry, who is such a name in DEI that we just had to have him on for ASAP Now. Now, Dr. Landry is an associate professor of emergency medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and also assistant dean, but he has a lot of other titles and a lot of other accolades, um, all in the DEI world. So we absolutely wanted to make sure we covered some discussion about DEI and what that means in uh, our workforce as well as medical education. So Dr. Landry, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Now, I, I wanted to open with, just share with us how you got to where you are. Because like I said, I have rarely seen as decorated of a person in the EMDEI space. Thank you for uh, bestowing that on me. I think uh, for the people that are doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work in emergency medicine, um, there's, there's, you know, a lot of us have come to this um, from, from similar experiences. I think for some people, uh, you get here by your experiences as either your just interactions with people in, in, in your world as you're growing up from childhood upwards, um, just having uh, some people get it because they uh, have a um, sort of that social justice charge as part of their life. Um, and others get it because of the experiences that um, have happened to them as uh, healthcare professionals when they're caring for patients, uh, as doctors, you know, working in the emergency department, or even some of those experiences as medical students or, or residents uh, in, in the emergency department. I think for me, it was, it was uh, an accompilation of all of those. It was uh, my experiences growing up, um, I think it was my experiences at the college I went to, and certainly I've been shaped by all of my experiences from medical school through residency and even in practice today. And it's interesting because, you know, the work of health equity, um, this isn't new. We've been, there's been people in this space for a long time. I think the reality is we're just now paying attention to it um, and, and sort of giving it, giving it its time now. Um, but I got here because, uh, uh, for me, it was really those uh, interactions that I had with um, my my colleagues and my patients, especially starting back in medical school, where you would see, uh, you know, we weren't calling it health equity then, we were talking about health disparities, but it would be the difference that patients, the difference in care that patients would get, those um, who are black or who are poor or um, who are, um, you know, homeless or, you know, who are othered in some way, and just seeing how their care was going to be different than others because um, because of many reasons, whether it be societal factors, social factors, or just those interpersonal interactions that were happening in, in between doctors and patients or nurses and patients or other um, interactions that happen within the healthcare setting. And I think you've said the term equity a couple times, and I think it would be remiss if we didn't at least touch on that because that's such a basis of this work. Um, and I'll, I'll be pretty honest, like kind of where I am, the concept of um, equity is 
something I feel like we've only talked about in the past year or so, and we're still very challenged by it. So tell me about how do you approach this question of what is equity versus what is equality? And how do we focus on one versus the other? Or do we have to? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. But maybe we'll start off with um, more the history of how we even got to here. Um, you know, in the 1980s, uh, Secretary Heckler, who was the Secretary of Health, Education and Wellness under uh, the Reagan administration, um, she released um, a uh, report and it's coined as, as commonly known as the Heckler Report. And I forget what the actual name of it was, um, but it's because we um, most commonly refer to it as the Heckler Report um, as she was in that role of Secretary of Health, Education and Wellness. And she, uh, in this report, they documented um, what was called black-white differences. And so we were uh, used to identifying um, differences in healthcare based off of race. And so the Heckler Report often talks about black-white differences. There's other races and ethnicities in, uh, that are identified in the report. But really, if you read through the Heckler Report, she t- uh, the, the, the author and the authors and uh, contributors talk about the difference between um, healthcare outcomes, morbidity, and mortality for um, black individuals in the United States compared to whites. Uh, and so for the longest time, we were talking about black-white difference. Uh, and I think that's often where people get lost in the discussion around equality, because we started off with difference, and then we said, well, let's try and make everybody's healthcare equal. Um, but in the 90s, um, you started to hear this term disparities, and disparities really shaped us to start to think about um, there's differences in care, but it's not just that there's differences, but there's differences because of um, many factors and w- sort of why those disparities existed, why those differences existed could be attributed to um, race or racism, bias, stereotyping, um, structural issues, um, access to care, um, access to uh, insurance, so many other things. And we started to overlay those differences with those barriers to care or barriers to equal care. Um, when we talk about health disparities. And then we made that transition to the discussion around health equity, which is where um, we are thinking about how do we close those gaps and eliminate those disparities so that individuals can receive the care that they need and deserve, understanding that those barriers may exist, all of those interpersonal barriers, those societal barriers, those structural barriers that exist. How do we um, overcome those to eliminate those disparities to um, make healthcare uh, uh, look to, to get towards health equity. Uh, I think people get bogged down, though, in thinking about equality because they, people want to say, well, if we give everybody the same thing, then everybody should be healthy. That rising tide lift all boats um, type of uh, mentality. And the reality is we need to make sure that we raise up others, um, especially those who have been disenfranchised, who have been excluded, um, who have been under uh, underserved and undertreated for years. And so I often refer back to that, that very cheesy uh, picture of the folks watching uh, the baseball game, and I'm pretty sure everyone's seen it, where uh, there's three individuals of different heights all standing outside of a baseball game, looking mm-hmm. over a fence and trying to watch a baseball game. And I, I, you know, I get the schematic, and I get where they were trying to go with that, because they're talking about uh, equality when everybody gets a box so they can stand over and watch the game. Um, and then equity when everybody has the ability to watch the game because they get the appropriate number of boxes so they can see over the fence. But I think the reality is we need to be moving to the place where that fence is gone and everyone can watch the game without barriers. And that's what we really need to be talking about with health equity is removing the barriers or overcoming the barriers 
not just giving people temporary temporizing measures to you know watch a baseball game. And then also when you talk about this to an even deeper extent, it's not just who's watching it from the outfield, but actually who's playing in the game. And that's where we really need to be thinking about um, these these issues even further. And fortunately for us, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, just released some much better graphics uh, that uh, that are out and available for us to use as opposed to um, the picture of the individual standing on the boxes outside of the baseball game. I actually love how you explain that. So I've seen that picture as well of basically, you know, the shorter person gets more boxes or taller boxes. And what's always been funny in this discussion to me is as emergency medicine physicians, I feel like when we treat patients, we're very willing to give them an extra box. And what I mean by that, if you see a homeless patient, most of us are quite willing to like let them linger a little bit in a waiting room, or maybe we do a little bit more workup, or we consult social work, or we maybe give them an extra sandwich. You know, like I feel like on the patient level, we're quite accustomed to that. And eventually, I think um, we burn out of that because we're so frustrated that we're always giving out extra boxes because there is no solution to homelessness, et cetera, and then we feel like we're just patching it. And I think that's where it goes to your discussion about removing the fence, um, which is very poignant to me because that's exactly what we should be doing. I, I think where it gets really interesting to me is when the patient is the person looking you know, over the fence, needing extra boxes, we have no problems with that. I feel like that's very open. When we move into med ed or workforce, I feel like people get very testy. Um, I mean, classic example, like I've said on um, committees for a residency match where we're ranking the students. And this equity question gets very uncomfortable very quickly. So how do you try to um, discuss that when it starts talking about like, our own selves, like ourselves in med ed as you, you know, let students apply for med school and residents have to match. And as you go out into the workforce, like how does that uh, layer in? One of the things that I often um, refer back to, I'll, I'll take it in two different directions. One is sort of, you know, when you're comparing applicants, we often want to compare applicants based off of numbers or based off of experiences. And we sort of line up candidate A versus candidate B, and we talk about candidate A and all these superlatives that they may have with, you know, research and uh, their flawless letters of recommendation and, you know, great GPAs and scores and all these other things that we think make them really strong candidates uh, to go into the health professions. And then we look at candidate B and we look at candidate B and they have, you know, maybe only one research experience, but no publications and they... Um, have letters of recommendations that aren't necessarily from a bunch of world-renowned physicians and researchers. And, you know, maybe their letters of recommendations come from social workers or, you know, from, you know, their chemistry professors. And we look at their uh, educational background or the institution that they came from, and we see that it's, you know, a state school. And we see that they, um, you know, have relatively uh, average experiences and they really don't stand out. And... when we're looking at these applicants, uh, we see that candidate A clearly, um, by our traditional rubrics and metrics, has a much better application than candidate B. Uh, but the reality is, if you look at these um, discussions and really tease out what's going on between these two candidates, well, maybe candidate B actually came from a school that was an inner city school or a rural school 
uh, where they had, um, you know, greater than 50% of the students were on free lunch. And um, there was a uh, 35% dropout rate um, from in the K through 12 space. And um, the teachers were working in classrooms that were 42 a classroom as opposed to candidate B, candidate A, where candidate A went to private school and they had tutors along the way and they had someone to help them write their college essays. Um, and they had money to um, have uh, MCAT prep services to help them to get the scores that they wanted. And so when you unpeel those layers and look into these applicants a little bit deeper, you think about the distance traveled that candidate A had to go versus candidate B. And if candidate B, that one who had the state school you know, um, application and uh, the average letters of recommendation, but you think about where they actually came from, they actually traveled a much further distance even to be at the point where they can put together you know, a, a complete application for, for medical school or for residency, whereas candidate A didn't have to come as, over as many hurdles or obstacles. And I think where we struggle with this is if you take this a little bit further is, yes, candidate A has all these superlatives, candidate B is average, but they have a greater distance traveled, um, but candidate A often looks like us in medicine. And when I say us in medicine, um, medicine is uh, a, a career for the rich. Um, and the AAMC likes to put out some amazing data uh, that talks about 75% uh, of matriculants to medical school come from the top two quintiles of family income. And so if you are coming from a wealthy family, getting into medical school is a lot less of an effort for you. Because again, you have a less uh, shorter distance to travel to be a successful, to be a um, appealing applicant to medical school. Whereas if you are not wealthy, you will likely have a further distance to travel. And so when we talk about, well, how do we decide who we want to bring into medical school or residency, we really need to th focus on these distance travels. And I know everybody wants to think about, well, you know, merit, but I think we have an educational uh, issue within our country where uh, there's disparities in education from the K through 12 space and even in the pre-K space, if you wanna go even further back. And um, just the opportunities that students have in the middle school and high school level that puts them in a position to be successful for a career in medicine. So I know I'm saying a lot, but the other thing I want to add to this is when we are sitting around the table and we are making the decision of who gets into our residency programs, um, we often use this term fit. And um, I know fit's only a three-letter word, but in my mind, it's a four-letter word. It is a, it's a dirty word. Um, because when I hear someone say fit, um, I hear um, they look like us, um, they sound like us, they have the same background and experience like us. And so that fit makes them feel comfortable because that fit means that they see the next version of themselves um, in that applicant. And I would argue that we in this country, we in society have uh, a certain level of discomfort with difference. And there's tons of data, especially from the business world, that talks about how differences actually make us better. And yes, it may make a, take a little bit longer to get to a point of agreement, but we have richer discussions when we have um, differences or diversity in individuals and their lived experiences and the backgrounds that they're coming from. And those teams actually function better and at a higher level when there's differences uh, between individuals um, because there's less groupthink that actually comes into play. And so I think for us to evolve in medicine and truly get to where we need to be, um, we need to uh, get away from that term fit and think about who's going to be a disruptor, who's going to be a difference maker 
and how do we bring in those differences um, so we're not all looking at the same problems from the same um, vantage point, lived experiences, uh, and uh, in cultural and social upbringings. And I think that's really where we need to be if you truly want to address uh, some of the ills that we see in, in our in, in our specialty in emergency medicine, uh, in the in in the health professions entirely, and even just in society as a whole. You you articulated that so beautifully. I almost don't have anything to add because. I mean, you, you've covered some of the big topics, I think, in education and all the things you say apply not only to residency match or student match, but also, you know, workforce for sure. And even in discussion about resumes, like, you know, I was we were hiring a physician recently. So you look at resumes and we had the same situation of someone clearly came from a disadvantaged background, less accolades on paper, um, but definitely traveled longer. And what those discussions go down to is are you hiring a resume or are you hiring a person? Because the person behind the, quote, inferior resume actually is often, um, I don't want to say superior, but I think adds what you're looking for in a group, just like just like you said. Um, the, the only piece I wanted to elaborate on as we take some of the tenets that you already mentioned and apply, like, apply it to um, our workforce is I hear of this a lot, that doctors that look like their patients or that identify like their patients um, tend to give those patients better outcomes. And that, that makes sense in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm, I'm personally at a county hospital. Um, so we found that the disparity between um, the physicians versus the patient population is actually very vast. So when we hire for physicians that have a similar background, we find that um, a lot of the subtleties, not just social determinants, but even just communication with patients improves. But could you talk about that a little bit more? Because like I said, everything you said already applies to workforce, but I'd like to just explicitly talk about um, workforce and health equity. This is a, you know, an interesting conversation, especially in light of everything that's happening sort of in our country with um, uh, the Supreme Court and their decisions that they're gonna be making in the near future. Um, uh, about acceptances to medical school and, and or acceptances to college in, in general and the use of sort of race-based um, uh, decision-making. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we're willing to use uh, race in some aspects but not in others. But I think what you're getting to is a, is a different matter. And, and, you know, as we're talking about, you know, health and healthcare, our ultimate goal is not for what benefits us as physicians, but ultimately what's gonna make our patients healthier, right? Which is gonna make our communities healthier, which is gonna make society healthier. And so all these discussions, we need to have them from um, those who we are supposed to be serving. We need to make sure that their voice, their opinions, um, their experiences, their needs are, are sort of front and center in these discussions. And the reality is there is data out there that says that uh, physicians who come from historically disadvantaged and excluded backgrounds are more likely to practice in um, underserved areas and mm -hmm. um, practice uh, in communities with higher Medic Medicaid needs. Um, and if you look at graduating medical school surveys, um, historically excluded and underrepresented groups in medicine, those individuals who are graduating from medical school um, at, uh, at graduation say that they are more than likely going to be caring for patients who uh, receive Medicaid for, or who have Medicaid for their for their primary health insurance, uh, whereas um, 
Others say they don't anticipate that to be a part of their career. And then there's also data that says that uh, minority physicians, when they're caring for, uh, excuse me, minority patients, when being receiving care from uh, patients, uh, excuse me, there are, there are other studies that show that when minority patients are receiving care from uh, physicians, where they share the same race, ethnicity, uh, country of origin, et cetera, when they have those same sort of uh, similarities as part of um, uh, who they are and their, their makeup and identity, they're more likely to um, uh, receive uh, vaccines, adhere to medication um, uh, regimens, um, report higher patient satisfaction scores, you know, all of those things that some people measure when it comes to, you know, um, those those surveys that go out and, and things like that. You know, that patients, uh, those, those data points uh, actually show that when there's racial concordance between doctor and patient, uh, that those things are going to be higher. Those patient satisfaction scores, vaccine uptake, adherence to medication regimens, um, feeling of comfort when they're in the, in, in, in the healthcare setting. Um, and I think that's just part of the discussion. I think the other part is there's data that shows that when medical students come from more diverse uh, more diverse medical schools. So um, students who have training or medical education in a diverse environment report that they feel more comfortable caring for patients who look different than them. And so if you go to a relatively homogenous um, medical school where all the students look the same and have similar background experiences, those students are going to report higher levels of discomfort of caring for someone who is not like them. And so, again, taking this not only from um, the, the, our perspective as physicians and, 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 and providers for uh, these patients, especially in the emergency department, where everybody comes into our doors, uh, to looking at it from the patient perspective where they feel more comfortable uh, with patients, uh, with, uh, with, with physicians who look like them. I think there's a, there's a, a good argument to say that diversity in, in medicine is important. And I'm, I, I would never be the one to say that all black patients need a black doctor, all white patients need a white doctor, all women patients uh, need a uh, woman physician, all LGBT patients need an LGBT physician. We don't need to get to that um, point, but I think there is something to say that when we have diversity within our specialties, uh, within our profession, uh, and within uh, all healthcare professions, uh, our patient outcomes will be better. And I think that is what the data has borne out over the years. And I, it's, it's very interesting in medicine how many times we uh, will change our direction on the management of a condition based off of uh, a single study, uh, you know, management of sepsis and, and giving a certain amount of fluids, you know, or, or treatment of, uh, you know, uh, of an infection and using a certain antibiotic or, or managing cardiac disease in a certain way based off of a single study. Um, but when we have multiple studies that talk about the value of uh, workforce diversity, uh, we, we turn away from those studies and we reject them as being fact. Um, and I, I, I just think there's something there that we as a society need to grapple with, and especially we in medicine need to grapple with. Um, and us in emergency medicine, we have to be on the forefront of this because um, we are oftentimes um, the first line of um, access to healthcare, or in many cases, the only access to healthcare uh, for our patients. And we have to be front and center on all of these uh, societal issues in order to really do what's best for the patients that we're caring for. I think that is so, so well said, because 
I mean, you started this whole conversation, you know, outlining, you know, some people get involved in this kind of work because of a burning platform of social justice. But I think most emergency medicines get into the specialty because of, in a way, a burning platform for social justice, because we understand that, like you said, we are the gateway. And a lot of times we're, um, we're the safety net. And that's where you see a lot of uh, diversity. That's where you see a lot of people coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. And, you know, it's, um, it's so striking that you do mention that we, we get uncomfortable, I think, when we, when we start applying these tenants to ourselves. So I want to tell you, again, thank you so, so, so much for taking the time. This has been a really just incredible conversation. Any last words that you want to um, put out there for the Nowcast audience? One sort of parting takeaway, and hopefully I'll be able to keep this short, um, is the importance of hearing patient stories um, and including them in our discussions and our dialogues. Um, and you know, you started off by asking me, well, how did I get into this work? And one of the things that was really important for me in this work that I do was, um, as a black physician, I would be caring for patients and they would confide in me some of their experiences in our emergency department, whether it was issues about where they were placed in the hallway or how long it was taking for them to see a nurse or to get pain medications or whatever it may be. Um, and um, for me, a lot of those uh, complaints or these concerns that patients were bringing to me um, started to weigh on me heavily and I listened to their stories and I started to think about how their experiences um, would impact them going forward, uh, not only with their um, current health that they're, or health issue that they may be having in the emergency department, but also um, their longstanding interactions that they may have with, with the healthcare system. And um, when I started to hear those stories and apply some of the same um, research methodology that we did um, to other uh, issues, uh, again, um, how do we uh, make sure we appropriately manage a patient who is coming in uh, with a stroke? Or how do we make sure that we're doing the right quality assurance for patients who have uh, abnormalities on x-ray that may not have been reported in the discharge instructions? And so how do we take those same, you know, that same rigor that we put into our research and also our same uh, QA assessments to those very important things um, but apply it to uh, the, the issues around health disparities and health equity. Um, that's how I started in this space and, um, you know, started to apply those experiences and those conversations and those concerns that I heard from patients um, into my work. And it has led me to where I am at today. And I would encourage everyone um, not to brush those uh, complaints of bias and racism under the rug, um, because I think there may be something there and it may be an opportunity for your department uh, to have an intervention that would actually improve the quality of care that um, a certain segment of your population may receive uh, and improve those um, scores that you may be getting from, from your patient evaluations and, and address some of those concerns that these regulatory bodies may have about the quality of care that patients are receiving. Um, because if we listen to our patients, we can find out where where the gaps and holes are, and we can actually improve patient care. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to thank you again for you know having this conversation because these these conversations, these stories are kind of where it starts from. And you know, I think for our audience, like if you weren't inspired to look into this more at your group or at your place of work, I hope you are now, <laughs> because uh, I think Dr. Landry again highly inspiring everything you've done. So thank you. Thank you. 
some big topics with some very big names this episode. Special, special, special thanks to Dr. Lauren Westifer and Dr. Alden Landry for sharing their time and insight with us this episode. We have got some other great content in this month's magazine for you to check out. First, shameless plug, we have myself and Dr. Labaz's waiting room medicine debate in transcript form in the magazine. Now, if you're a regular listener of Nowcast, you'll remember that this is actually a debate that came out in last month's podcast. So you can check it out by audio in the March Nowcast, or you can check it out by writing in this month's magazine. We also have another skeptic's guide by last month's guest, Dr. Ken Milne. As we mentioned, he is a regular columnist for us, so always check out his wealth of knowledge in Skeptic's Guide. And we also have a really great review on masks by another Nowcast and ASAP Now regular, Dr. Ryan Radicki. Now, I don't know about you, but my hospitals are all currently taking down their mask mandates. So I thought this review was a cool one to see what's going on in the literature versus real life. So lots for you to check out. And as I mentioned, we are working on podcast only content right now. So if you have something you'd like to share, ping me. This is about putting together content that you want to learn more about and explore. And of course, feature cool stories and ideas from our ASAP members. Tweet us at Nowcast if you've got an idea. You can get us at at ASAP now, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. So thanks you guys for joining us and see you all next time. 